How long you plan to hold that on me? As long as it takes. Okay. No! To the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 61 and 62, which begin with Helen trying to intimidate the Mariner and end with a look inside the D's. We've got a bit of a hostage situation of sorts here at the <laughs> beginning of this week's episode. Helen is standing there clutching her netting dress to her body with one hand and holding a spear gun on the Mariner with the other, and we start off proper with the Mariner finishing his line from last week. He says, believe me, I'm not the one to start on, and that is the second half of killing's a hard thing to do well. So basically, it's a threat. If you try to kill me, you better actually kill me, but you won't actually kill me, because I'm hard to kill. If you want to start killing people, start on easier targets. The subtext there might be like Enola, (laughs) but Helen is not responding to his statement about killing when she says both of us. She's specifically elaborating on the idea of you're taking us to dry land, both me and Enola. The Mariner brings up a good point. Yeah. How long do you plan to hold that on me? And Helen says, as long as it takes. 12 days? That's not... You got to sleep sometime. Reasonable. Yeah, his point is very good. If you're going to force me to do this thing, then you better be prepared to force me to do it until it's done. Mm -hmm. And that being, according to him, 12 days. The major downside to forcing someone to do something at gunpoint is that's only a valid threat as long as you've actually got them at gunpoint. Which is fine for small or immediate things. Yeah. That works. Open this safe. Exactly. Open the safe. (laughs) But take me somewhere? Eh. We saw this very well illustrated in Mad Max Fury Road. Max climbed into the truck. He confiscated all the weapons. And him holding his gun on Furiosa and the wives lasted a couple of minutes of movie time. As soon as they got into the canyon and the rock riders started attacking... We were done. Yeah, and he did set himself up to be at an advantage by confiscating all of the guns, but he still has to sleep sometime. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he may no longer be actively holding a gun on them, but the fact that he has a gun and they don't keeps him strong, but once he falls asleep, they could change that easily. So at some point, they're going to have to get on the same page in some way, which is what happens in Fury Road is that they find themselves, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm -hmm. They find themselves on the same side in the conflict with the Rock Riders. So that begins to build that relationship. We'll see. But I think the same sort of thing happens on the Trimoran. But we'll see about that. I think it takes a really long time. Yeah. 
It takes the arrival of the skyboat, I believe. Do you think that this movie would have been better had they done this enemy of my enemy is my friend bit sooner? The problem in looking at that is that we've already had an enemy of my enemy situation. Their relationship was forged in the midst of a smoker attack. They already have experienced a situation where they had to work together to survive an attack. In theory, they've had their rock riders already. Right, and it didn't take. It didn't stick Mm. like it did in Fury Road because Max may be a gruff and surly character, but underneath it all, he's still a good person. Right. And the Mariner is a gruff and surly character who, underneath it all, is very questionable whether or not he's a good person. Exactly. Plus, the exact situation, it's not a one-to-one. It's not. There is a specialized vehicle involved. There is helping innocence get to somewhere involved. But the directionality of those things is not the same. So Mm. Furiosa had something to hold over Max. And Max had something to hold over Furiosa. So therefore, they ended up in the truck together. It's not the case here. Mm. Like the Mariner says, you have nothing that I want. Furiosa saw the value of having Max as a warrior ally. The Mariner does not see Helen as any sort of benefit. Yeah. I am very glad, as a side note, that we watched Fury Road and dissected it before going into Waterworld. Oh, for sure. Because, sure, Fury Road happened way after Waterworld, but I like having something that is arguably of a higher quality to compare to. (laughs) Yes. There are a lot of people that say that Mad Max Fury Road was the best movie of the 2010s. Oh, yeah. There are no people. Well, okay, there's a non-zero amount of people that say (laughs) that Waterworld is the best movie of the 90s. Mm Mm-hmm. Single digits, if you're being generous. Yeah. We get another sample... I believe, of the Mariner's odd sense of humor. Yeah. The exchange between the Mariner and Helen, the Mariner says, how long do you plan to hold that on me? Helen's reply is, as long as it takes. And he goes, okay, and releases the sail to collapse on top of Helen, which I think he was trying to be funny to himself. Mm -hmm. He's never trying to be funny to other people. He's entertaining himself. And to us, because, you know, we're normal people, it's an asshole move. But he is entertained. At the risk of revealing something about myself, there's something I find incredibly appealing about Helen standing there with the gun trained on the Mariner, clutching her dress in that way. There's just something I like about that image of her being very threatening, but at the same time... Being very vulnerable. Yeah, It's an odd mix. Yeah, there's a juxtaposition there where she is fighting through her vulnerability of being naked and putting that aside to be strong enough to do this thing. Yeah. Plus, it's a naked Jean Triplehorn. She's gorgeous. I tried so hard, and I'm not talking about Jean specifically, but I tried so hard to find what is the average weight of a sail on a racing yacht like this. And I found a lot of things that said, oh, here is how you measure the size of a sail and all of this 
stuff that was essentially, here, this is how you do the math. And I said, no, I don't want to know how to do the math. I just want someone to spit a number in my face and be done with it. And I could not find. I can only assume that with how much fabric this is, that if it dropped on top of you, it would flatten you. Not kill you, but just knock you flat in such a way that you wouldn't be able to hold a gun on someone. It was certainly enough to knock her over and then it had like a netting effect where it didn't prevent her from moving around. It just trapped her under there like, where's the edge? There's enough folds and whatnot going on that how do I get out of here? Mm -hmm. And also like the stunning, confusing effect of this all happening so quick. Definitely like put her out of commission. Oh, but that wasn't enough for the Mariner. Nope. I hate this. He grabs an oar and walks up to her. He has her subdued. He has her effectively subdued. And he beats her with an oar. Okay, he hits her once. Hard. Really, really hard. I don't want to argue semantics, but I feel like if you're beating someone, you're hitting them more than once. I saw this, and she's under there, and she's screaming, let me out of here, you're a coward, don't touch my child. Like, she's physically subdued, but she's not done fighting. No, 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 she's If not. anything, she's more angry now. Yes. And the Mariner, seeking a quick resolution to this conflict, brings out the oar. And in my notes, I say, oh, this whirlwind romance is off to a rocky start. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. Classic case of boy meets girl, girl holds boy at gunpoint, boy drops a sail on girl and knocks her out with an oar. So his oar maneuver was certainly successful. It definitely subdued her to another level. And the positioning just feels very uh, artificial, mm -hmm. but she's got an arm sticking out from under the sail and it just happened to be the arm that was holding the spear gun. So that is now free. He kicks it loose. But the positioning of her arm then tells me that she is laying chest down flat against the netting. Mm-hmm. On her naked boobs. Mm-hmm. That's delicate skin. And yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That is very fair. There's a saying that I try to use, and I know I've said it before, I don't know if I'm on the podcast or not, but the closer something is to your skin, the higher quality it should be. So never mind the talk about her outfit from last week, but this very rough, very wide netting up against her skin. Oh, it's just gross and harsh, probably painful, and there's so much delicate skin exposed. Enola pops out of the below deck area, peeks around the sail at what's going on. I have to wonder how much of all of that that she heard. She probably heard the shouting, got a good idea of what was going on with her holding a gun on the Mariner. And it's interesting that she came out now. And she probably waited until the Mariner was no longer standing back there by the helm because the helm and the door to below deck are very close to each other. I'm a little surprised. Enola strikes me as feisty. So I'm a little surprised that she didn't come up earlier and come to Helen's defense. Dropping the sail on her, I think, was warranted. She was holding a weapon on him. So that can be self-defense. The oar, that was not warranted at all. It was an unnecessary escalation. Yes, it was. So I'm surprised that Enola didn't 
defend Helen at that point. Anola is still feeling out the situation. She is going to get more bold with the Mariner in later minutes. But at this early stage, like the Mariner said, they've only been on that boat a few hours. Yeah. She's still unsure of exactly how much she can push against the Mariner and still be relatively safe. I agree. We are going to see a transition, a journey in Enola and how she's willing to behave towards the Mariner. Mm-hmm. So the Mariner, he looks at Enola, looks away, and then climbs the mast. I have to laugh because back when we were talking to Dave, this was when we were at the bank on the atoll, and he mentioned, I don't know if it was even on the recording because it's been so long, how the Mariner will do this thing where the scene is over. He's going to walk away. He's going to exit the frame somehow and leave Helen and Enola in the scene. And that is exactly what he's doing here. Enola has entered the scene. She is now a player in the scene. And the Mariner's like, nope, I'm leaving. And so he climbs the mast. Yeah, it definitely felt a little pouty (laughs) to me. (laughs) That is the Mariner's brand. Yes. We watch the Mariner climb the mast. While he's climbing the mast, we can see that the sail is still not up. Mm -hmm. And then we get a shot that feels like it should be right away. But the sail is back up, which takes time. So did he go up there to put the sail back up? Does he have to go up there to put the sail back? I want to believe that in order to undo what he did by flipping that switch and dropping the sail on Helen, that he would have to climb up to the top of the mast and pull something back into position. Okay. I like that better than the pouting thing. Mm. I think he stayed up there to pout a little bit to get away from them. Get some distance. Yeah. Yeah, In reality. But as somebody who, when I'm angry or upset, I just want to be alone. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to be alone. But then that, similar to the Mariner and what he's doing now, but then that creates a expectation of I am separate from other people. And so there comes a point where you have to break that expectation and it's awkward to do that. So if he separates himself from the other two, then that is now the status quo of him being separate. And he can't stay that way. He's going to have to break that separateness at some point. Mm -hmm. The longer that he stays up there, the more awkward it's going to be to return to the group. I find it hard to focus on that aspect of it because we get a high angle shot of the Mariner climbing the mast and we are up there at the height of those structures that help keep the mast lashed to the hulls. But we are so high up and this is a practical shot. This is not a green screen. Like we are sitting at the top of this boat and there's Kevin Costner climbing up the structure there. And it is so insane to me that we are actually this high up and this is actually their actor. And it seems so risky and something that modern day Hollywood would not necessarily do this way. I think they would be willing to have an actor actually climb up, but it would be done with a stunt double. I would assume that the reason we see Kevin Costner up here is because Kevin Costner said, I'm climbing that mast. The same very like Tom Mm Cruise-esque. Tom Cruise would absolutely climb the mast. 
He would do it with no safety harnesses. I'm sure Kevin Costner was wearing safety harnesses. Tom Cruise, no safety. (laughs) (laughs) He would be authentic about it. We have this odd cut from Enola sitting at the bottom of the boat with the sail still sitting around her. And then we cut immediately to the mariner at the top of the mast and the sail is back up. So some time has passed. Yeah. And the way it's cut makes it feel like no time has passed. Exactly. But it is very clearly later in the day because the sun is setting in the distance. And Kevin Costner is there on the mast. This is the shot we mentioned back in the first episode where Kevin Costner was tied to the mast and they had a helicopter with a camera and the helicopter was getting too close for comfort and the boat was blown off course and started sailing out into the open ocean. This (laughs) is that shot. There was a very real chance if the crew supporting this film was unable to catch up to the boat and rescue him before something tragic happened, this could potentially have been the last footage of Kevin Costner Okay, you're telling me that they had this boat at full sail out in the ocean and they didn't have somebody on board who could actually sail it? That's the story. That's ridiculous. It is. Put a freaking sailor out of view, probably a couple. Like below deck, yeah. a big boat, so that they could actually sail the boat. That's ridiculous. The story is that they lashed him to the mast and then they all and got in the helicopter. nobody else was on board. Yep. That's ridiculous. It's dumb and irresponsible. I, I question the validity of the story. <laughs> I am more willing to believe that Jean Triplehorn was auditioning her own body doubles in her trailer than I am to believe that nobody was on that boat with yeah. Kevin Costner. Legitimately, that boat is not a one-person boat. No. It was made to look like it could be done with one person, but those were aesthetic changes. Those were not actual, functional, hey, look, I can sail this boat all by myself changes. So anytime you see Kevin Costner, like, actually sailing, there are other people on that boat who are actually sailing the boat. This shot of the trimaran sailing into the sunset is pretty long. We go from 57 seconds where the shot starts, and the next shot in this clip doesn't begin until a minute 23. Yeah, it does. It feels like the sort of shot, long and calm and peaceful and beautiful, that should have been the cap to a better scene. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is the cap on a scene. It is the cap on a scene. It just didn't feel quite right. Yeah. Yeah, it just felt to me like he was pouting instead of... (laughs) Okay, him Retreating to a peaceful place. Him climbing up there to... Put the sail back where it belongs is practical. I think him staying up there to distance himself from Helen and Enola, it's so much more pouty than him going to hang out somewhere serene. Which is a shame because it's a beautiful shot. It is a beautiful shot. he looks very uh, relaxed as he can be and serene up there. So it's an excellent shot and it says something about him and his lifestyle and how he enjoys it. I think he's just misused. He's got to hide up on the mask because the women folk are angry at him. Right. (laughs) I'm going out to the garage. (laughs) We smash cut to our first view of the D's. This is a quote unquote miniature that was 100 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 12 feet high. 
Yeah, it was like in a parking lot or something, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So every time you see the Ds floating in the water, it's CG, which is probably why this initial shot is shrouded in so much smoke. Yeah. This environment here, I find it odd. Mm-hmm. Thus far in the movie, we have seen no clouds whatsoever. So is this, is this just so much smoke or is this fog or smog? I want to say that the idea was fog. Okay, that's the vibe I get mm-hmm. is like the, the ghost ship coming out of the fog yeah. type deal. And really, this is a ghost ship. It is the rusted out remains of a ship that everybody would recognize revived from the dead as it were so this is the exxon valdez Mm -hmm. the d's which technically is a big reveal for the end of the movie oh it is yeah they call it the d's all the way out and it's not until the very end scene where they're floating above it that it says exxon valdez and everyone's supposed to go oh that's what they meant oh okay that feels pretty weak yeah like a weak payoff yes yeah that seems to be the aesthetic of this movie Yes. Weak payoffs. Weak payoffs. (laughs) (laughs) Cutting inside, the first shot we see are two smokers working a sort of smelter, pouring this yellowy liquid into a mold. So these guys are making bullets. Yes. But aside from them, there's another smoker doing some welding in the foreground. There's more smokers doing welding in the background. There are... Guys walking around pulling scrap metal and wheelbarrows and things like there's a lot of activity. Yeah. And this does feel like the hubbub of activity processing the fruits of their conquest, their pillaging. So this sudden influx of materials and they need to get it processed. Mm-hmm. This quickly establishes the aesthetic of the D's as dark, dirty, crowded, and busy. There's not a lot of people sitting about like there were on the atoll. Yeah, it's quite a different aesthetic than the last group of people, the last society that we saw. One thing that the Ds has that the atoll didn't is firemen poles, because at the very tail end of the shot where we come in on the atoll, there's a guy, he drops some scrap metal in a wheelbarrow, and then he reaches over, grabs his fireman pole, and jumps onto it. Yeah. It was something that really should have been in Gregor's tower. Uh, Yes, it should have. We get a quick scene that I want to point out. It is a group of four or five men picking up a long pole. Mm -hmm. There is something about the way this happens that feels like three stooges. So this pole Mm -hmm. is the handle to an oar. Despite the smokers' love of gas-powered engines, they don't use an engine to move the Ds around. Yeah. Okay, so they are rowers. Is this ore actually sticking out the side? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they are rowing right now. We'll get to see the oars deployed okay. later on in the movie. We're looking at a bunch of establishing shots inside the Ds that were cobbled together from other parts of the movie. Because the order has not been given to deploy the oars at this point. That's something that happens later on. Knowing that it's an oar, you can see on the far right-hand side the actual paddle part of it. I like the idea of the paddles because you could have a lot of them and you can have 
a team of four or five guys on each oar and get a lot of leverage involved. The problem with that is that you are much less likely to row something the size of an oil tanker. Like Even if you've got hundreds of little oars sticking out the side, it's just too massive of a so weight. Oh, massive. Which would explain why they don't take the D's places. Mm-hmm. The D's is much more like the atoll than not. If the D's sailed up to the atoll, all they'd have to do is steamroll <laughs> Run the atoll. Run it over. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much effort involved with moving it that it's easier to deploy the armada. Absolutely. Moving the Ds with oars is absurd, but it's nowhere near the most absurd thing in this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We next get a shot of a whole gaggle of children. Mm -hmm. So I don't recall seeing a ton of women on the Ds. It seems like they're just all men, but obviously there are women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to start seeing more women mixed in amongst the smokers. I don't think the smokers use women as the fighting force. I think they mostly stick here to home base. What's important about this shot is that it shows that the smokers do not adhere to strict population control like the atoll does. No, they do not. They refer to themselves later on, and I think I might have mentioned this before, that they are the Church of Eternal Growth. Right. And part of that is to reproduce mm -hmm. to uh oh what's the phrasing multiply be fruitful and multiply yes be fruitful and multiply <laughs> we've already seen some young people involved in the attack they were the flag wavers and the machine gun swabbers the number of people on the d's is always in flux for every pirate that is gunned down in an atoll attack there's Probably two or three kids waiting to take his place. Yeah. I think it's important to note that the can of meat that is being opened and tossed aside by the woman in this shot is labeled as smeat because Hormel did not give the production permission to use spam. Okay. Which spam would be very easy to find in Hawaii. They love spam in Hawaii. I love the replacement name smeat. That's great. It is just as attractive and appetizing a name as Spam. Let's leave the smokers behind in order to focus in on the inner circle. The first person we see here is the official doctor of the smokers, and he's got a paintbrush, and he's painting something. We won't figure out what it is until next week, but he's working on it. He's also wearing a cannula of some kind. I'll be interested to see in future minutes if there's any hint or direction as to what is being pumped through that cannula. Yeah. Is it oxygen, which is my first thought, or is it some sort of inhaled drug? I'm hoping that it's not oxygen because I do not want to believe that on a boat that is as explosive as the D's, which honestly, with the amount of smokers actively smoking on a tanker of gasoline, I don't know. I don't want to think that there's also the element of some guy with oxygen tanks and having his open flame of cigarette. Yeah, close bad by. idea. It's a it's, very bad idea. It's very southy of Boston. Oh, there's plenty of people north of Boston to do it too. <laughs> Something straight out of the departed. 
I work for an oxygen company, as longtime listeners will know, and we flag accounts for people that we discover are smoking in the house mm-hmm. while they're wearing their oxygen. And frankly, they get treated with a bit of disdain. <laughs> We only get a few seconds of the doctor here at the end of this clip, but I would like to dive into his actor a bit. The doctor is played by John Fleck, his top four on IMDb list. This movie, Waterworld, he was also the seedy guy in the park in 1993's Falling Down with Michael Douglas. He was a guy in The Naked Gun 2.5, The Smell of Fear, He's listed as, if that's your attitude, forget it. So he's probably just someone who says that line. And the last thing in his top four is Howard the Duck from 1986, where he plays a character named Pimples. Never seen Howard the Duck, so I cannot comment on the character itself. John Fleck was born May 7th, 1951. Fleck's website reveals that he became an actor in 1976 and gained notoriety as a performance artist in 1983, when he climbed on top of the one-way bar in Silver Lake at a monthly event called Theoretical and proceeded to strip tease while singing Puccini's Madame Butterfly. Fleck's acting credits on IMDb began in 1982 with Richard DeMarco's Truckin' Buddy McCoy. Since then, he has accumulated 138 credits and is one of only 13 actors to have appeared in all incarnations of the, quote, modern Star Trek series. Specifically, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. I use quotes to say modern because it's that phase between TOS and the CBS Direct shows. Yeah. The stuff that primarily lived on broadcast television. Anyway, he played, I want to say, seven or eight different roles between the four shows. He also appeared in other science fiction programs such as Babylon 5 and The Orville. Aside from his acting, he's also one of the NEA4, alongside Karen Finley, Tim Miller, and Holly Hughes. Have you ever heard of the NEA4? No. So, to simplify it, because it is quite the ordeal, in 1990, he and three other fellow artists became embroiled in a lawsuit against the government's National Endowments for the Arts program. John Fronmayer, one of the chairman of the NEA, vetoed funding his project, a performance comedy with a toilet prop, on the basis of content and was accused of implementing a partisan political agenda. The case was eventually won at the U.S. Supreme Court, and as a result of that ruling, the NEA subsequently stopped funding all individual artists. Okay, I don't know a ton about the NEA. What I do know is it's supposed to be nonpartisan. It's not supposed to pass judgment on the artistic value of a work. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to decide what is art. So they would have to rewrite their rules to get around having to explicitly support works that they deem inappropriate. I guess before early 1990s, the NEA would just give grants to anybody who applied to them. Yeah, which is how it's supposed to be. So now, if I'm understanding correctly, they give grants not to individuals, but to, say, a museum. Yeah, And then the museum distributes the money. I'm guessing they give the money to theaters. Organizations. Organizations that want to put on a production, not so much this one specific actor is putting in for a grant, or this one specific 
director or musician is putting in for grants. Like, no, we're not going to give it to individuals anymore because that got us into trouble. We're going to give it to an organization. You are the theater of West Memphis or something like that. You will get a grant, but yeah. Joe Schmo director, no. And so as an individual performing artist, such as John Fleck, he would then have to go to the Performing Arts Center of West Memphis and say, hey, I would like to do this thing. Will you use your grant money to support me to do this? Mm -hmm. And they would say yes or no. Exactly. That puts the onus of making artistic judgments upon not the government. Exactly. But yeah, that's one of his claims to fame is that he was one of the NEA4. Okay. As a side note, I could not find a comprehensive biography about John Fleck, probably because he is still out and about and performing and things. But I am pretty sure he is yet another LGBTQ actor in this movie. So while the main set of performers, mainly Kevin Costner, Gene Triplehorn, and Dennis Hopper were all straight, like a lot of the supporting actors in this movie were not. And it's nice to see that they are represented. We were talking about this the other day off mic after you had prepped the deep dive for John Fleck. And you pointed out that there was a decent number of LGBTQ actors in the mid-90s at a time when that wasn't looked upon so great. And I made the comment that, gee, it's almost as if someone's sexual orientation or otherwise has no effect on their talent. Yeah. If you want to exclude LGBTQ people from your movie, you can't use talent as a legitimate reason because mm. it doesn't matter. Speaking of talent, the doctor, aside from being some level of medical authority, is also a bit of an artist in that he is painting something. We do not get in this chunk to see what he is working on. That is going to be revealed next time around. The payoff to this is quite good. I really like where this cuts off to leave us in suspense mm -hmm. for a whole week. It's pretty great. Yeah. So come back next week. We will see the Deacon get a new eye. We'll see what passes for a car on Waterworld. And the Depp Gage will bid salutations to his master. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 31. We'll see you next time.